Christmas being purple. Purple is the color of royalty, of kingship, but it's also the color of repentance. And so we talked about the importance of the repentance of our sin and receiving God's forgiveness. Then the second color of Christmas is white. So white is the color of purity, of godliness, of holiness. And we wear that color of being pure and holy in our life as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Advent is about celebrating his first coming, but it's also about remembering that he promises to come again. And then this morning we look at the third color of Christmas, and the third color of Christmas is flesh tones, skin. So let's read what John has to say for us in the first chapter. We call this the prologue of John's gospel. And when John references the word, he's talking about Jesus. And in the Greek language, that word for word is logos. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. In the beginning was the word, or the logos, referencing Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, it sounds a little bit like the opening chapter of Genesis when God is creating the world. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then in the next few verses, the writer of John's gospel speaks of this one named John who comes to give witness to the light, being Jesus. And we pick up the story in verse 10. He was in the world, speaking of Jesus, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord, and together let us say, thanks be to God. Well, I want you to picture this scene in your minds. We're in a shopping mall, okay? And there's Santa Claus. He's got a little boy on his lap. And Dennis the Menace and Joy rock, walk right past Santa Claus and that long line going up to him, and they just keep right on walking. And then Dennis turns to his buddy Joy, and he says... Don't waste time on him, Joey. He promises you everything. And then after Christmas, you can't even find him. 
And that's how Santa Claus is sometimes, isn't it? Promises you everything, and then after Christmas, you can't even find him. You know, for centuries, the Jewish people expected, and they hoped for a Messiah. But they could never find him. The prophets had foretold the coming of that day of the Lord, but just as Dennis the Menace had given up on Santa Claus, it seems as if God had promised the Jewish people a Messiah. But at the end of the day, they just couldn't find him anywhere. But then we get to Matthew and to Luke's Gospels, who tells us the story of the Bethlehem manger scene, and that Bethlehem manger scene changes everything radically. The whole equation gets turned upside down. Now we have a Messiah, but it's a different type of Messiah than what the Jewish people were expecting. This Messiah, this Christ, the anointed one, this child has been born. He gets named Jesus. You know the name Jesus means he who saves. That's why we call him the Savior of the world. This Jesus, this Son of God, has come into the world with flesh as a human being. If you knew Jesus, and you were living in his time, and you pitched him, he would actually say, ouch. He was a real, live human being. And so the last color of Christmas, flesh tones, reminds us that while God is this eternal, holy, transcendent God. He's also an intimate God. He's also a personal God. He's also an up-close God that we meet whenever we see the face of Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Just look at the face of Jesus. So thanks to John's gospel here in the prologue, we are reminded that Jesus is fully God. Now wrap your, your minds around this. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully a human being. Let's kind of unpack that for a moment. Let's see what we can make of this. First of all, Jesus is fully, totally, 100% God. Wow. He is the preexistent Christ. See, when, when John writes here that the Word was made flesh, he uses that term, the Word, the, the logos in the Greek. He was using a word that the Greek-speaking people of the day and the Jewish people would have plugged into equally because both of the Jews and the Greeks would have understood that what John is writing here is he's saying that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the one who was the creator of the world. Jesus is the sustainer of the world. Jesus is the controlling reason and factor and force of all of life, giving vitality to all things. I'm just trying to get my mind around the fact that at the moment, think about this now, at the moment of creation, you go back to Genesis, when God just speaks, he doesn't, he doesn't do anything, he just speaks. And the world comes into being. When God was speaking the world and it came into being, he was doing it through Jesus, the pre-existent Christ, at the very beginning of when time was born. 
See, Paul the Apostle echoes some of what Paul, uh, of what John is writing here in Colossians chapter 1. Let, listen to what Paul says about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him, Paul writes. He, meaning Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is fully God. He was God. He is God. He was present at the moment that this world was created. And that's what John is writing about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Jesus is fully God. But the writer of John is also trying to remind us that Jesus, again, wrap your brains around this if you can, not only is He fully a God, but He's totally, fully, 100% human. How does that happen? Like you and me, he has flesh tones. The word became flesh and dwells among us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his translation of the Bible, called the message. Some of you have a copy of that translation of the Bible. By the way, Eugene Peterson died about two months ago. But in his translation of verse 14, he writes, The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I like that. The word became flesh, moved into the neighborhood, dwelt among us. That, that really means to tabernacle among us, to pitch a tent and to be in our midst, to be a resident and participant in our midst. There was a pastor one time who did a children's worship time, much like Joshua Brazil did this morning with our children, and he had the children together, and he was saying to them, you know, Jesus has come and will come again. He'll, he'll come twice. He came the first time as a baby, and the second time he will come as this expectant king. And so he asked the children, how did Jesus come the first time, thinking that they might talk a little bit about the manger and the shepherds and the wise men and the angels, and one little boy blurted out, down the chimney. <laughs> well, maybe he wasn't too far off. Because, you know, in some ways, God sent Jesus down heaven's chimney to live a season of time, to live a segment of human history in this world as a human being. And the fancy term for all of this is called incarnation. We just sang a hymn about the Word of God incarnate, the incarnation, God being fully human but being fully flesh and living and dwelling among us. The incarnation, by the way, the Bible doesn't try to explain the incarnation. It just affirms it and says it is so. So why did Jesus 
have to come with flesh, in flesh tones. What was God's purpose for that? Well, the first reason, as John writes here in the text, is that Jesus came with flesh to make God known to us, for us to get a glimpse into God's heart, to have a sense of God's intentions and purposes and God's desire for us. You know, later on in John's Gospel, in chapter 14, Jesus has this disciple named Philip. And Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father, and we'll believe. And Jesus replies back to Philip in verse 9 of chapter 14 of this same Gospel. John, he says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, Jesus came to give us a glimpse into the heart of God. You know, the, um, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving of this year, late in the afternoon, I got a text message. The text came from Ben Alexander. Ben's a senior pastor at St. James United Methodist Church here in Greenville. And then, about two hours later, I got an email from Dennis Adams. And Dennis is the retired associate pastor at St. James United Methodist Church. And Dennis has preached here a couple of times this year in my absence. So I get a text from Ben about 4 o'clock that afternoon, about 7 or 8 o'clock that night. I get an email from Dennis. Now, both of them, being Methodists, knew that when I was in college and seminary, I worked at Garner United Methodist Church outside of Raleigh as a youth and education director for about six years. So both of them, either texting or emailing me to let me know that one of the pastors that I served there at Garner, George Johnson, had died the previous day. He had died on the Monday before Thanksgiving. He was 84 years old. Now, you know, there are a lot of pastors in the world, and some of them have great pastoral care skills and abilities, good leadership, organizational abilities, but they may be poor preachers. And there are others who are great, fantastic preachers, but they're not so good in pastoral care. They don't have good organizational leadership abilities. And so when I went to Garner, 21 years old, I hit the jackpot because I got to work with a pastor for three years who was an outstanding preacher and an outstanding pastor and leader. When I saw George Johnson at work, I said to myself, I want to be like him one day. He showed me up close and invited me and encouraged me to do everything I could to develop those good pastoral care skills, to develop good leadership skills, to try to be halfway decent in the pulpit. He was a great preacher and he was a great pastor. And you know, when you're 21 years old and you're trying to figure out your path in life, you need a good mentor. You need someone who will come alongside of you and give you a glimpse up close of what that type of profession is all about. And my guess is that a lot of you in this room, it doesn't, doesn't matter what your profession is or what you did if you're retired now. My guess is 
either you had someone or maybe you have someone right now that has shown you up close what a good person professional is all about in your chosen field. Or if you're married, a husband or a wife, or you're a parent, then you had someone in your life that you looked at and you said, I want to be a good husband like that person. I want to be a good wife like that person. I want to be a good mom or dad like that person because they showed you up close what a good husband or a wife or a mom or dad's all about. And that's why Jesus came into the world. That's why he moved into the neighborhood. That's why he pitched his tent among us. He wanted to give us a glimpse. He wanted to show us up close what the love of God, what the grace of God, what the mercy of God, what the generosity of God, what the faithfulness of God, what the peace of God is all about. You look into the face of Jesus. You listen to the words of Jesus. You hear his teaching. You see his heart and his attitude. You got an idea of how God feels about you and me and the world he created. That's why Jesus had to have flesh tones and skin and move into the neighborhood to give us a picture of what God's all about. But the second reason that Jesus had to wear flesh and had to pitch his tent and move into the neighborhood among us is because, as John writes in this text, because it gives you and me the opportunity to become his children. The text says that we get a chance, we have the right to become the children of God for all who believe in his name. Now what does the writer of John mean about believing in his name? Does it mean, number one, that we have to believe that his name really was Jesus? No, I don't think that's what the writer meant. Does it mean that we must intellectually affirm that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Light of the world, the Lamb of God, all of these names and titles that the Bible ascribes and gives him? No, I don't think that's what the writer was meaning either. You see, first of all, when you believe in something, if you believe in something, it means that more than you have faith in it. It means that you have confidence in something or someone. I believe that if I climbed up to the top of this sanctuary and got on top of the roof, I believe, I have confidence that if I jumped off that the law of gravity will work. I really believe that. And I believe that on my way down, I will be very frightened and I believe that once I hit the ground, that there could be multiple broken bones and damage to this human body. I believe in that. I have confidence in that. And you know when I drive my car around town, if I'm driving 35 miles per hour, 45 miles per hour, whatever the speed limit is, and some, somebody suddenly slams on brakes in front of me, I have complete confidence. I believe I am sure that if I hit that brake pedal, my car is going to stop. I don't ever hit that brake pedal and wonder, is the car going to stop? I have confidence. So first of all, we believe, we have faith. More than that, we have confidence in the name 
of Jesus. That's what makes us his children. What does it mean to have confidence in the name? Well, biblically speaking, the name represents a person's character. The name represents a person's essence. The name represents a person's personality and qualities. So in order for me to be a child of God, I have to believe in the name of Jesus, meaning that I have confidence in who he is, his essence, his attributes, his qualities, that what he did on that cross by giving his life for me and dying for me, that if I accept that, not only do I have eternal life right now and in the future, but I have a quality of life right now that if I believe in his name and his essence, then it means that I have the potential to have the heart of Jesus in me too. I have the potential to be able to start talking like Jesus and acting like Jesus and thinking like Jesus and having his attitude and heart about other people. That's what it means to believe in his name. So it's not just some intellectual assent or acknowledgement that, yeah, his name is Jesus. Yeah, he died on the cross. Yeah, he taught some good things that I ought to think about. But to believe on his name means I have confidence that the type of person Jesus was is the type of person I need to be. And it just radically changes what I say, what I do, and what I think. So those are the reasons why Jesus needed to come. We needed a glimpse of who he is, and Jesus coming in the flesh gives us the chance, all of us, to become his child. We become Jesus' children by believing on his name. Now I've got a question to ask you this morning. Could it be that Jesus has come your way, this fully God and fully human Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world? Could it be that during this Advent season, Jesus has come your way and you've missed him? You have flat out missed him. You know, John writes in his text this morning that a lot of people will miss Jesus because it says that Jesus came to that which is, was his own and the world didn't recognize him. They didn't know him and some of them rejected him. So which way is it for you during this Advent season? Have, has Jesus been at work in your life and your eyes have been opened and you have seen him? Or could it be that you've missed him? Will you embrace the flesh tones of Christmas and truly make this fully God and fully human Jesus your newborn king? Or are you going to be like some of the people of John's day? Where John wrote, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive it. Which way is it going to be for you? You know, it would be a real shame for Christmas to come this year and you to worship the baby in the manger, but not bring the baby in the manger and let him grow up, the one who died, the one who rose again, the one who ascended, and the one who promises to come again, it would be a real shame if you just focused on that baby and you did not embrace Jesus as the one who came for you. 